Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. Uh, Gene's taking a break this week, so it's just myself and Dale in the studio. We're here to defend government schools because we are the dogs. D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. For new listeners, you're saying, well, what's going on here? Well, this is 3CR, this is Radical Radio, and we have this radical idea that um, a public school system should be funded by the public and the private school system should be funded privately and never the twain shall meet. Um, not just separation of religion in the state, but separation of private corporations from the state when it comes to the very important business of educating the children of Australia. Um, this didn't used to be a radical idea, but it certainly is these days, with state and federal government spending billions and billions of dollars each year propping up the private education industry. And in the secondary and primary school systems, that private school industry is run primarily by religious institutions. Anyway, we're here to stop it, because this is 3CR Radical Radio. Um, Yeah, and we've got to point out what's going on, otherwise no one will know. And 3CR is the place to find out where stuff that not everyone knows about. Uh, This week, we'll be discussing education issues and policy from the United Kingdom, from America, and back here in Australia as well. We'll be looking at the wealthiest schools, and we'll be looking at... Actually, schools that are struggling, but struggling successfully. Because that, that is something you can do. You can struggle and you can win all at the same time. Um, there's a lot of people following the Richmond Football Club around Melbourne at the moment that would agree with that statement. But rather than talk about football, we're going to introduce a new segment on our program. We're going to do a state school that's working segment. A profile of a state school in Victoria that's doing a damn good job. And um, we'll be dealing in detail with all the wonderful things that are going on at Brunswick Secondary College later in the program. But for now, let's get straight in, because what happens overseas in the United Kingdom and also the United States tends to happen in Australia a couple of years later. Uh, Our politicians and our policymakers are probably the least courageous in the Western world. If you look at what's going on in politics at the moment, you can see this. They're not willing to stick their neck out for anything because they might lose their jobs. There's no courage, Um, there's no policy courage, there's no commitment, certainly to education in Australia today, by any politician in particular. Um, And because, I don't know, free marketeers, the liberal, free market economics and liberal democratic societies are supposed to work well together, I don't quite know how that works, but they're supposed to work well together, Um, education has become a commodity. And if education in Australia is a commodity, then how can you measure it? Now, this is not just happening in Australia, it's also happening in the UK. And it's, in the UK, it's gone a bit far, to the point where there's a fetishisation of tick box targets in schools. And you think, oh, well, so what? So what if they're measuring too much? Well, the answer is teachers are sick of it. The teachers in the schools working with the children, trying to do their best to be the best educators they can, are sick and tired of the tick box targets, and they're leaving leaving in droves. I'm referring to some data that's highlighted in an article on Wednesday the 13th of September in The Guardian over in the United Kingdom. And they refer indeed to a fellow called Helmut Schlick, um, who's a sociologist, and he describes something called the Spartan Complex. Have you heard of that, Dale? The Spartan Complex? No. no. I think it's interesting. I hadn't heard of it either. And it's in it's Spartan Complexes where in primitive societies, primitive men are envious of the apparent luxurious lot of children, hmm. as the Spartans were. They said, oh, children, they're so coddled, they're mollycoddled, they're not real people there. And the adults would be envious of this. And so the adults would seek to impose hardship upon the next generation in order that they may suffer as the previous generation has. I think this refers to the Spartans' idea about child-rearing, like you know, taking a young boy, throwing him in the bush, and if they survive, that's great. If they die, well, then they probably were meant to. You know, that sort of mm. real hardship. Mm. Now, as children across Britain these days settle into new classrooms, um, because they start their year in August, not in January like us, 
with all their new teachers. It's a useful idea, is actually to keep this in mind. Uh, this is quoting from an article by Tricia um, Brachner in The Guardian in the UK, as I said, on the 13th of September. She says, how else can we explain the widespread animus against educators? Like, it's just in the culture. And they're regularly portrayed as work-shy, moaning people. Well, I used to be a teacher, and I know a few. Actually, teachers can moan amongst the best of them. But the whole idea of people thinking that it's unreasonable for them to do so, I think, yes, well, get into school and find out. Actually, just as an aside, I'm having been a teacher, I often hear people say, oh, you're lazy teachers, you get all those holidays. And I said, oh, yeah, I suppose you're right. Well, how about you be a teacher then if it's so good? And they go, oh, no, I could never do that. It's too hard. Because hmm. I, don't, I don't want to have to deal with all the kids. And I said, oh, well, yeah, then be quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, back to the article in The Guardian. Sorry for, sorry for that aside, <laughs> dear, right. dear, dear listeners. This article points out that teacher recruitment and retention because that's the hiring and the keeping of teachers in the UK is now becoming a growing and serious problem. Secondary schools in particular are struggling to recruit enough teachers, that's just to hire them, and the reason they're recruiting is they have to replace those who are retiring. And the National Audit Office reported released um, just last week in the UK shows that the Department of Education is actually failing miserably on, recru- on recruitment, but also on retention. According to a government figures published this year, Almost a quarter of teachers who have qualified since 2011 um, have left the profession entirely. In February this year, the House of Commons Education Committee in the UK published a report that acknowledged the increasing pressure faced by schools as a result of losing these staff and pointed specifically to the lack of personal time, the lack of financial reward, the lack of status relative to other graduate professions, as the probable causes for teachers quitting. In one survey, 76% of teachers cited the workload as the main reason for leaving their jobs. They've been worked too hard, so why stay? Now, the majority of parents in the UK that this person meets, this author meets as a teacher, um, are relieved that their child is happy at school and grateful to the adults who act as the in loco parentis, that is, you know, the parents in place of the parent during the school day. But beyond the school gates, attitudes are different. And in contrast to the energy displayed by government when it comes to reforming qualifications, adjusting school funding or creating new types of schools, there is an astonishing unwillingness to respond to staffing crisis that they're right there in the middle of over in the UK. Raising children is supposed to be the most difficult thing in the world, but there's always implication that teaching 30 or more kids in the one classroom is a doddle. Why should teachers get 13 weeks holiday a year when everyone else only gets 25 days? This is, this is a recurring thing. It's happened from generation to generation ever since education was industrialised and you had professional teachers. Now, there are, appears to be an exception um, that life in a school, both for adults and children, should be hard work. But anything which comes too easily in education is suspect. A new form of emotional stress rooted in the principle of constant personal accountability is a prime reason for the crisis of teacher retention. And I can attest to this. You are constantly personally accountable for what you do and what marks you put down all the time. While most jobs entail some degree of supervision and oversight, few, apart from that of a hospital doctor, are monitored by the minute like teachers are now. This author says that they're old enough to remember when an essay would just get a tick. It's hard to convey how many things have changed. The notion of personalised learning, there is no reason why a teacher should not have to design 30 different lesson plans for 30 different children. The impossibility of delivering this dream, combined with the stresses of Ofsted, over there they have inspectors, uh, exams, and the relentless cycle of assessment, means teachers live with what is best described as cognitive dissonance. I would recognise it as not germane load. That is to say, well, I won't go on and explain cognitive dissonance. Uh, you're stressed out. It's too much work. Now, this is the condition in which we hold two opposing views. This is cognitive dissonance. We're told two opposing views, experiencing it as a form of mental discomfort. We seek to harmonise our ideas, generally by eliminating the less favoured concept. Now, picture, just as an example, the following scenario. There is one minute to finish a lesson. The success criterion needs to be ticked, but a child wants to share something else that they have learned, be it vaguely relevant or completely off-topic, perhaps something entirely random from a cartoon they watched at home three weeks ago. It's simply easier, when the clock is ticking towards the start of the next lesson, 
to cheer the child on to the content being assessed. But it never feels good. It feels like a betrayal of what we went into education to achieve. No rise in pay or reduction in workload can compensate for the pain of an adult-driven, spreadsheet-ready, objective replacing a child's joy in sharing what they actually know or, or indeed what interests them. Only those who can harmonise, that is, those who can convince themselves that children would talk about targets even if they had not been specifically trained to do so, thrive in a system that fetishes the tick box. Many teachers end up deciding that they, of course, would rather quit. Now, this author's not advocating a return to the 1970s. A friend's O-level French teacher spent a year knitting while telling anecdotes about her holidays. The rose-tinted spectacles worn by these old enough to remember a time before the introduction in 1988 of the national curriculum tend to obscure the reality of directionless teaching and harsh behavioural regimes in those days. Nonetheless, there is a truth in the adage that a watched pot never boils. No one in any job performs as well unless they are trusted as professionals. Teachers are leaving because they are constantly scrutinised and it's exhausting, even when they do deliver the elusive, outstanding lesson. What is perplexing is that everyone knows this. Schleck, the philosopher who came up with the idea of um, the Spartan principle, reminds us there is something primal driving this apparently senseless behaviour. Fear of our children missing out in an increasingly competitive world is resulting in an almost military level of micromanagement of teachers and a micromanagement of students. Surely it is time to employ some emotional intelligence here, a kind of creativity embodied in a project to bring youngsters and old people together recently on television in the UK on Channel 4 uh, when they got a whole bunch of four-year-olds and saw what they did in an old people's home. What was so refreshing about this project involving four-year-olds and older people was its recognition that teachers cannot provide everything a child needs. Independent schools recognise this too and often provide a range of specialist art and sports tutors, in addition to furnishing their charges with a range of arenas in which to shine if they are not book smart. More time spent in this way has the benefit of giving permanent teachers more time to decompress. Just as importantly, these tutors are trusted to deliver lessons without all the paperwork and tick boxes. Now, while this author says it might be heretical to say so, tutors are cheaper than permanent staff. While there is no quick fix for the crisis of teacher retention, there is an opportunity, if we're bold, to remember that it really does take a village to raise a child, and it doesn't have to be a Spartan village. Now, that article was written by Tricia Barcher, and she teaches at primary school-aged children in London. Um, she goes off, I think, on a tangent there, saying, well, let's have lots and lots of tutors and no trained teachers. Um, I think, actually, that's not a useful thing, certainly at primary school level. It's my personal belief that primary school, level, primary school teachers should be at least five-year trained, should be paid two-thirds more than secondary school teachers because the early years are so very important and a proper professional who's trusted to do their job in that situation is actually what's really required. In secondary school level, I think there is a great deal of um, benefit for the school reaching out to professionals in the community at large. But anyway, that's perhaps an argument for another day. So the whole tick box thing that's going on in the UK is exactly what's now happening in <coughs> Australia. Because here in Australia, our teacher retention levels in the UK, 25% of all teachers um, who have been trained and got a job since 2011, 25%, of a quarter of them have left. So that's just a complete waste of money for everyone concerned. It's a waste of money training them, it's a waste of their time, it's just a waste. In Australia it's worse. And certainly, as we highlighted last week with the Teacher Australia program, there's only 32 of them left that have been recruited since 2011. Of the Teach for Australia grants, only 32 left in the schools from which they were placed since 2011. And um, yeah, at a cost of around training them around about $32 million. That's a million dollars a teacher. And even I know that's not good economics. Anyway, we'll be back talking about what's going on both in Australia and the United States after these messages and a little bit of music.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. It's just myself, Robert, and Dale in the studio today. As Jean's having a break and her dulcet tones will be returning next week. Um, yeah, that was good music, different to what we normally play. That was Mr. Scruff from the album Trouser Jazz, recorded in 2002. A particular track you just heard was Valley of the Sausages. Yeah, just a bit of fun. Um, as I say, you've been listening to the Dogs Program and hopefully continue to because... I was talking about what's going on with tick boxes and teachers getting stressed out in the UK. You think, oh, well, that's over there, it's not here. Very interesting article in The Conversation um, earlier last year talked about this exact same problem. And it talked about the problem just in terms of teachers leaving the profession and how to stop it in the context of Australia. Because Australia as a nation is actually failing to retain not just the best people, but any people in the teaching profession. The attrition rates are worryingly high, with researchers estimating that up to 50% of teachers are leaving the profession in the first five years since they've graduated. That is, you go to university, you graduate to be a teacher, you get a job, and five years later, you're gone, you're out. The whole thing was a waste of time. Maybe you get a job in the public service, and people think it's nice you have an education degree, but you're not using it to educate people. It's just a waste. It's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. Um, And it's the way the free market, actually, in this case, just wastes the whole process. Because while it's difficult to get a clear idea of the precise number of teachers leaving the profession of teaching over over the five-year period, because each state and territory collects its own statistics, and there is no actually established mechanism for tracking movements between education systems, but the latest data collected from all states and territories suggests an average of 5.7, that is, over 21,500 teachers have left the profession since 2014. And this shows an attrition rate that varies across the country, Um, but they're actually even higher in the Northern Territory. That's probably, well, for for the nation, 5.7% of all teachers left left the profession in 2014, in one year. So we're talking about five, just over one year, Almost 6% just left. In the Northern Territory, it was high. It was 16% teachers just left. Now, although the attrition rate of early career teachers aren't necessarily higher than the rates of other professions, the implication of these losses are actually far-reaching because in Australia, you are losing expertise because the Australian schools workforce is actually now getting older. The research shows that teachers who leave are likely to be replaced by even less experienced teachers. In South Australia, for example, about half of the teachers working in government schools are older than 50. So I guess I'll say that again. Half of the teachers in South Australia who are working in government schools are older than 50. And I'll tell you why they're still there. And if you're a teacher, you know why. It's for your super. It's for your super. And also, there's a partial loss of investment. You're wasting your money in the whole teacher training process. So you spend all this time putting taxpayers' money into training teachers, and they just don't continue teaching. The ratio of students to teachers, in this case where it's difficult to get new ones, the ratio of students to teachers is continuing to fall. As the population of school students sets to increase by 26% by 2022, the growth rate in primary schools of 32% and 80% in secondary schools, more teachers are going to be needed to actually teach more kids. We're getting more kids and we haven't got the teachers that are being trained and staying. That's the bit, not just training, training and staying. And, of course, the teacher shortages in remote and regional Australia are much, much worse. So this is what's happening. So how do you stop it? Well, the answer is really, really simple. You create, them, you create the teaching profession as a profession, not as something that has to be assessed again and again and again and again and again. Has this been done anywhere successfully? Oh, why, yes, it has. It's been done successfully in Finland, of course. Uh, not only in Finland are the students performing at the top of international assessments, like PISA, but Finnish universities are turning away aspiring graduate teachers. There's more teachers want more people want to be teachers than can be teachers. In Helsinki alone, Helsinki alone, more than 1,400 applicants were turned down from enrolling in the Masters of Education. Notice they're Masters of Education. It's not an undergraduate degree. In, 20, in, in, in 2005, in Australia, 111 people nationally applied to do a master's. 111 people nationally applied to do a master's in education. 
Okay, in 2013, this has grown significantly to a bit over 4,000. However, over the same time frame, there's been an increase in the number of applications from students with an ATER rank in the lower bands. So what's happening in Australia is to get the teachers because they keep leaving is you take the entrance score down and down and down and down. And even though ATARs aren't actually reflective of the quality of a human being, they are reflective of the quality of a potential teacher. Now, despite the intention to recruit teachers from the top 30% of school leavers, less than half offered to study education are given to students with ATARs above 70. So the quality of graduates in Australia is actually getting worse and worse, if you think ATAR is a make of quality, which it's not in terms of character, but it is in terms of potential being a, being a teacher. So it's easier to become a teacher. That's, that's how we're solving the problem. We're trying to make it easier and easier and easier. You've got an ATAR of 52, yeah, you can be a teacher. Why not? Because we need more and you might as well get the job. But in the Finnish system, early career teachers are trained well and then critically, once they're trained, are supported to try new things off their own bat in the classroom. They're not micromanaged. They are given the duty and respect that a professional has. Whereas in Australia, it's the opposite. And so what is it that means that kids are leaving schools because the teachers aren't respected oh, sorry, well, teachers leave schools because they're not respected um, I have to say I used to be a teacher I'm not a teacher I'm not a teacher anymore well, one of the reasons is I was not respected um, I've had several experiences and I can tell you if you have to write four major reports for each student and you teach 925 students every year there's a great deal of your time taking out writing reports and not teaching um, but then again, I was in a particular situation, I was one of those really weird people, I was a music teacher, so I pretty much taught everyone in the school, so I taught them all, which means I had to write reports for them all, I had to assess every single one on all the things that the English teacher did. English teacher had 60 kids to teach each year, I had 900 or so. But in a world where everything, every box has to be ticked, I had to tick every box, so guess what, I'm not a teacher anymore. Strange but true. You've been listening to the Dogs Program, I'll stop complaining and we'll move on to another issue. Um, often here we talk about the social segregation of children in Australia. We talk about educational apartheid. We talk about the difference in school systems being so dramatic when it comes to the income of parents that send their child to one, sector, one school sector or another that it really does get quite disturbing if you're talking about having a cohesive society. And in Australia, if you turn, use the term elite school, everyone... <coughs> Pretty much everyone in the country knows what you're talking about. Elite schools are those schools which exclude poor people unless they're there on a scholarship. Oh, yes, scholarship's fine. They'll take smart poor kids, of course. But elite schools are schools that exclude the vast majority of the population because the vast majority of the population can't afford up to $30,000 for every child for every year that they're educated. Well, these elite schools are things that everyone wants to send their child to because that's, what, that's what's good in life in terms of education. But within these elite schools, um, every now and then there's a whistleblower. And within these elite schools, they develop their own separate cultures, separate cultures that are different in all sorts of fundamental ways to what is expected and accepted in the rest of the country. There's a very interesting article that will be written, and I'm going to see if I ask, I'll ask Dale. Dale, can you fill in on, on what I'm hinting at, what I'm alluding to here? <laughs> sure, Robert. I've got an article here written by Jane Gilmore for the Sydney Morning Herald uh, entitled How Shocking Sexism Becomes Normal in Elite Environments. Anyone following the recent spate of stories about sexual harassment and, ex and exploitation of girls in Australia's elite schools and universities might find Tuesday's allegations of a toxic culture of harassment and predatory behaviour at Macquarie Group eerily familiar. Upskirting alpha male culture, predatory behaviour towards a female staff member and stalking are among the claims made in a letter from lawyers planning a class action against the investment bank. An ex-Macquarie staffer claimed a former stockbroker cut off a woman's ponytail at the office. He put the hair on her desk right in front of her. She was so shocked she didn't say anything. They said complaints were made but no action was taken. The Macquarie Group told Fairfax Media that it takes all allegations of inappropriate behaviour very seriously and denied that any current staff members were involved in any of these allegations. 
it's difficult to imagine a modern workplace where men could assault women. And it's not just seen as normal behaviour, but a funny story to tell around the office. But perhaps looking at the path these men take to get to such positions might explain how it happens. When the Young Sluts Instagram account set up by boys from Brighton Boys Grammar was reported in the media last year, Headmaster Ross Featherton said the school was taking the matter very seriously. The Age reported at the time that a Melbourne boy... A Melbourne mother who spoke out in disgust told Fairfax Media that she received a threatening phone call from an old boys club parent. When the boys from Melbourne Grammar were filmed rating girls on a scale of 1 to 10 and being told not to bring anyone under a 7 to the end of year formal the following month, Headmaster Roy Kelly said the school was taking the matter very seriously. When the series of group assaults at Trinity Grammar in Sydney was exposed in 2000, the school hired a public relations firm to divert the media reporting to an issue of bullying rather than the systemic rapes of children watched and applauded by large groups of students. Four students eventually pleaded guilty to various offences and were given good behaviour bonds. An in-depth examination of the culture at Trinity looked into the long history of so-called elite schools and concluded that bullying, brutalisation and hardening is characteristic of the production of ruling class masculinity. That none of the offenders faced any serious consequences was not surprising, the report said. Each boy had his own team of lawyers. These were ruling class boys. Boys at the St Michael's Grammar School, one of Melbourne's most expensive private schools, were last year involved in what police called a pornography ring, a Dropbox folder containing nude images of girls from the school, believed to have been created by a 16-year-old male student and was accessed by several other male students at the school. These schools are feeders for the elite colleges like St Paul's College at Sydney University, infamous for its pro-rape Facebook page. The five students suspended from ANU's uh, John the 23rd College for posting photos of women's breasts and rating them on Facebook were all from elite private schools in Victoria and New South Wales. Six months later, another four students from John the 23rd were suspended for chanting graphic sexual rhymes about nailing women. Both Melbourne and Monash universities has degrading hotties of Facebook pages taken down after female students complained. Despite how very seriously all these matters are being taken by executives releasing media statements, sexism and entitlement seems entrenched in schools and universities for the privileged elite. And where do the boys and young men go after their expensive educations? Merchant banks, prestigious professionals, corporate leadership and politics. The forensic examination of the rapes at Trinity summed it up perfectly. From elite boarding schools to colleges to the boardroom, the masculinity of success separates emotion and friendship from each other and degrades degrades caring and affection. Women are outsiders, at best a necessary evil, at worst a threat to their liberties and to their very identity. Ross Gitton's incisive article yesterday described the effect the effect of this on the national economy. More than three decades of neoliberal ideology have left business people convinced they're demigods, the source of all goodness and justly entitled to our approbation and genuflection. That entitlement wasn't created in a vacuum. No one is born believing poor people are just too lazy to be rich or that women are nothing but objects of fear or lust. These things are taught, both implicitly and explicitly. The lessons are clear. From the ridiculousness of gendered clothes that allow boys to run and force girls to sit quietly with their knees together, to the sinister warning that encouraging rape might damage your job prospects by resurfacing just when you need your best CV to work for you. Education and wealth is no protection from sexism. The huge gender disparity in the professions of of the privileged, like science, law and medicine, are proof of that. Sexual harassment and bullying are higher in in the media than in the police force. In the corporate world, CEOs are three times more likely to be named John or Peter than to be female. 
The pipeline of sexism starts early and continues all the way to the boardroom. Whatever the results of the investigation into the allegations about the Macquarie Group, it would be a mistake to believe such cultures are rare or that they happen by accident. They're taught in homes, schools and universities of the wealthy and the trickle-down effect of the attitudes, if not the entitlement itself, might be stronger than we imagine. Oh, thank you, Dal. Yeah, here we go. I can, I can hear the director saying, well, not all the people who go to elite private schools come out that way. All I have to say to that is that, from what Dal has said, and, and you just have to listen to it, concept of segregating children off into elite school creates the necessary but not sufficient condition for what you're talking about, Dale. Mm. You can't actually create that kind of attitude to women. You can't actually create that unless you, you create a hothouse. You create an environment where that is the acceptable norm. You know, both in you know, single-set schools and, 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 and uh, co-educational schools, that's not important. Othering. You actually have to make that. And so this concept of an elite private school is a necessary but not sufficient condition. You know, there's good and bad in everyone, of course. Just because you have lots of money doesn't mean you're evil. However, you have to make that kind of thing. It's I a mean, kind of argument, you know, the people say, with, oh, not all men. It's like, well, no, but all men are responsible for recognising the privileges that they enjoy that do denig- that are responsible for keeping other people down. So, I mean, we're all responsible. So whether or not you're part of that environment and take part in those those behaviours, it's yeah. your responsibility to report those behaviours. It's your responsibility to stop those, those behaviours. It's your responsibility... But how do you get the kind of how do you get yeah. that um, that's not a um, that's not a value yeah. that you don't get instilled the value that that's wrong in that environment. Mm. It's, it's, it's as you said, it's normalised. This just becomes completely normalised. Well, just interestingly and contrastingly, something happened a couple of days ago, just this last week, <laughs> and girls mm. have won the right to wear shorts and or trousers to all Victorian state schools whenever they like. Hooray for 1917. I mean, yeah. 2017. Yeah, hooray for 2017. Girls what? are actually set to win the right to wear shorts and pants in every Victorian state school. Everyone. Primary, secondary, the lot. Believe, I can't believe it. It's yeah. So Education Minister James Molino has vowed to ensure that all girls have the option of wearing shorts or trousers whenever they want to. He's in the, he's in the process now of currently considering this in, in every Victorian state school. Can you imagine that going on at... Um, at the Methodist Ladies' College. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm actually they probably can wear trousers there. Um, don't know, but now there is a right for every state school, but not for every elite state. So not, not, not for every elite school. Mm. Also, interestingly enough, we are talking about gender here. We're going a bit off topic, but I would like to point well, out that here, it is all connected here at 3CR Radical Radio, 855 on the AM dial and podcast. Um, on the 5th of October... Just coming up in the next couple of weeks, there is a Battle of the Sexes film fundraiser for 3CR. Uh, you probably, I don't know if you know, but there's a new, new film out. It's all about Billie Jean King's 1973 victory over Bobby Riggs in an infamous tennis match called The Battle of the Sexes back then. It's a movie. The movie is on Thursday, the 5th of October, and it's at 6.30 at the Westgarth Cinema. Now, the Westgarth Cinema is down there on High Street in Westgarth, number 89. It's in Northcote. If you want to turn up to support 3CR, Radical Radio, it's going to cost you 25 bucks, unless you're a concession, and then it'll cost you 20 bucks. And, of course, how do you get the tickets to this? How can you support the battle of the sexes? How can you turn up to this movie and enjoying yourself to support 3CR? You can buy tickets online at 3cr.org.au, or you can actually give us a phone call on 03-9419-8377. Or you can pop down and have a chat to me, or anyone here at the radio station, uh, at 21 Smith Street in Fitzroy. Come on down, you can get yourself a ticket. All the funds raised by turning up and seeing a movie go to keeping 3CR fighting fit and winning the battle on sexes. Here we are, defending government schools. Well, there's gender in schools, so we've got to address these issues. We'll be back with some more. Um, defending public education after some more Mr. Scruff from the album Trouser Jazz 2002. We're about to start on a long sea voyage, you and I, maybe 20,000 miles. I'm ready for anything, and I hope you are a good sailor. So leave away me, Ernie. 
for the call of the sea is strong. And we're away. The tides are right. Soon there'll be just us and the ocean. Us and the ocean. Oh, uh, allow me to introduce this young man. Mr. Scott. A fine-looking fellow. A friend of all creatures in the sea. I see. Do you see what I see? What? Where? The colourful little 64-page booklet packed with recipes and hints. By George! I'm sure there are many things we can find here to eat. Just then, Scrope rushed up to the captain with some news. What is it, Milan? If you want a nourishing fish dish, you must do as I say. All right, Scrope, but be careful. Put a barnacle or a sea cucumber onto a piece of foil. Like this. At this point, add the extra ingredients. Bread, cheese, sausage. Herrings, 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 herrings. You know, they're cheap and they're delicious. Herrings, herrings, herrings. I eat them an awful lot. Now I've got to get into the fish tank and sing. Sea creatures of them all. The whale. The whale. The whale. About the size of a good sardine. And what about that fish there? Huh? Oh, yes, you're off your head. That's not a fish. That's a whale. Really? It breathes there. It's a mammal. Quite remarkable. Funny noise. Free. It's a funny noise, but it's a whale, all right. Let me a trumpet there. The friendliest, most affectionate creatures in all the oceans, with an undersea language all their own. Yes, they're almost human. And they're still with us as we come into harbour. It's been a long trip, 20,000 miles, and I hope that you'll remember for a long time to come where we've been, what we've seen, what we've heard, the sights and sounds of the sea. Goodbye to Sally and goodbye to Sue. And you are listening, goodbye to you. Welcome back to the DOGS program, the defenders of government schools. We're here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the www.3cr.org.au. If that's how you're listening to me, welcome back. Um, we are here to discuss and defend public education. Now, I promised you earlier in the program, we are introducing a new segment on the show. It's actually... Your state school segment, that's what I'm going to call it. Your state school. We're going to pick out one state school from around Victoria and highlight all the brilliant work that they're doing. Now, because I tend to, in my role as an educator, work in lots and lots of different state schools around the state, probably about 100 each year now, doing more and more work. Um, I won't tell you what the work is because we're defending them. Um, I'll keep that sort of oche, but I can tell you that I was working last week in one of the nicest schools in all of Victoria, in my opinion. And my opinion, I reckon, counts for something, because I reckon I'm right. 
<laughs> it's actually, I, I would say, the best secondary school I've ever worked in in Victoria. What am I talking about? Where would the best secondary school in Victoria be? Is it out in the country? Maybe it is, but no, it's not this time. My best, my, my school of the week, best school of the week is Brunswick Secondary College. Mm-hmm. It's actually just down the road from here at 3CR on Smith Street. Brunswick Secondary College. It's a, it's a top-notch school. It's been top-notch for ages. They've just got themselves, believe it or not, a little bit of money, and they're building themselves a new gym and some new classrooms. The whole place at the moment is a bit of a mess if you looked at it because it's a building site. So, they, so, so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. I kid you not, that's what they've done. That's the sort of teachers you've got there. The whole place is just a turn bill site. That's going to be good for the kids. So the classrooms disappear. What do you do? Give up your staff room. Give up that nice, quiet place where you can have a bit of a bitch about the kids behind <laughs> their back. No, you can't do that because at Brunswick Secondary College, they don't need to do that because the kids are sparky and good. Now, I was there last week, and I must say I was so impressed. Let me tell you a little bit about this place. It's, it's a co-ed school. It's 7 to 12. There's around about 1,000 kids turn up there, and in terms of who, who are these kids? Who are these kids? Are they rich kids? Are they poor kids? Are they... Where are they all from? Well, I can tell you that in this school, about a quarter of the kids are the poorest kids in Australia and about a quarter of the kids are the richest kids in Australia. About a quarter of the kids are upper middle quarter and a quarter of the kids are lower middle quarter. In fact, it's about as typically Australian as you can get. The Australian distribution is 25%, 25%, 25%, 25% for each of the quarters and this school's pretty much exactly the same. Rich kids, poor kids. Um, there's about th- over a thousand of them. They don't have any indigenous kids, but more than half of the kids come from a language background other than English. Now, if anyone knows anything about Australia that day, these days, you can't make assumptions about that. That could come from the Horn of Africa, come from Asia, come from South America, come from you know, Europe, come from anywhere. And that's what Brunswick is. You walk, as you walk through the playground with all the kids screaming at each other and kicking balls and screaming and shouting, having a wonderful time. Um, so many different languages, so much fun. It's a really good vibe. And the teachers, I can say, and I know several of them there, and it's shout out to the teachers at Brunswick Secondary College, teachers are the best. The teacher I was, I, I, I won't embarrass her by mentioning her name, but I was there working with the kids for, on, on a very special day. And the teacher who'd organised it had worked out that she'd got me and, and my friends into work in the school on her day off. So what did she do? Turned up anyway. Unpaid just because she wanted to help and do all those things because she really loved the kids. She loved. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that in a Royal Commission way. I'm saying it in a proper way. She really did care about her kids. Um, so what, what are their results? What, like, you know, if you're talking about academic results, what are their results? The, the results of the school in terms of academic NAPLAN results, okay, NAPLAN results, all the things that everyone jumps up and down about, are they absolutely brilliant? No. No. Are they absolutely horrible? No. They are about... Um, they're just good. They're just good. They're just good results. Are they very good? Yeah, pretty much. Some of them very good, that they're all good. In Year 7, they're excellent. In Year 9, they're just good. But this goes to show that Napoleon is not everything, because you go into that school and you see the way, the respect that they show for each other. And these are kids, you know. Kids don't always naturally show respect for each other. It's just, I don't know, I'm, very rarely do I get all teary and, and, and utopia about a particular school, but this one I just really liked. And do you know what? The kids were cheeky. When I was working with the kids, they were cheeky. They were rude too. They demanded respect, and if you gave it to them, then they rewarded you with curiosity. It was a deal. They say, you better know what you're talking about. Proved that you know what you're talking about, and luckily enough, I proved I knew what I was talking about. And do you know what they rewarded me with? They didn't reward me with good behaviour, no. They rewarded me with questions. They rewarded me by pushing my knowledge in what I was there to do. They rewarded me by asking questions, by being curious, by saying, yeah, you reckon? Prove it. It was brilliant. I loved them for it, because that's what you want from your kids. You don't want kids to just accept what's being told to them and write it down. No, you want the kids to question every step of the way, and that is actually what learning is all about. And did these kids do that? Yep. Okay, so how much does it cost you, the taxpayer, to have this utopian ideal in the middle of Brunswick, this Brunswick Secondary College? It's an amazing place that I've just went to last week, which I can't sing the praises high enough. How much are we paying? Well, we're paying 
$13,792 per student per year, which is actually smack bang right in the middle of what I've always said is what you need to spend on a kid to give them a gold standard education. If you send your child to this school, you'll be getting a gold standard education and you'll be paying right on the money. Would you be paying $25,000 out of your own pocket? No, not at all. Would you be paying fees and charges and parent contributions? Well, interestingly enough for this school, there are some. It's a, it's a state school, but I happen to know that the fees and charges each year to send your child to Brunswick Secondary College are $862 per student from the parent. Less than $1,000. What if you don't have any money? What if you're one of the really poor, poor students that comes from a poor family? Do you have to pay those fees and charges? The answer is, of course, no. No, you don't. No, you don't. And, of course, they've just had a Capital Works grant, which is really, really cool. They've had a Capital Works grant, and they're building, on, building all these new buildings. It's chaos in the school at the moment. Are they coping? Yes, they certainly are coping. So what's, what's this school all about? Are they doing some weird thing? Are they a Steiner school? Are they all in individual education plans? Are they Montessori? Do they, do they pick and choose? Well, the answer is actually, yeah, they kind of do a bit. But they actually offer a traditional, standard, discipline-based curriculum. Nothing fancy. History, maths, science, geography, writing, reading. They're not, they're not, I mean, obviously they've got brilliant teachers there working and doing it well, but they have a traditional discipline-based curriculum. But it's complemented by achievement level for individual students. And also they have specific cohorts of students through continuing to raise expectations and standards of learning. They actually have a SEAL program there. So if you've got a kid there and they have, for all sorts of reasons, shown that they have a genuine aptitude for one thing or another, then they can be in a class and they are in a class together. And I, I met those kids, actually. They're really nice kids. Were they the best kids in the school? Nah. <laughs> Were they the smartest kids in the school? Yeah. <laughs> Different thing, really, isn't it? As I said to them, I said to the kids at the time, you know, smart's two things. One, you've got enough curiosity to ask a question. And two, you've got enough guts to ask it. If you haven't got the guts, then, uh, then smarts doesn't matter, certainly, um, in the real world. And that's what, that's what they're being taught at this school as well. So, yeah, they do have a, a special program called a SEAL program for accelerated entries. So kids do a test to get in. But that's not the school. That's just a little bit of it. Um, they actually have and they support high academic standards and their emphasis, and it's not just on academic standards, but it's positive relationships with each other, with the teachers and with the community like th that surrounds it. There's very strong values in the school. There are things that you cannot compromise. You talk about rules and that sort of, yeah, there are big, strong rules at Brunswick Secondary College and one of them is respect. <laughs> if you don't show respect, you don't get respect. So as soon as you walk through the doors, you've got to respect your, your peers, you've got to respect your teachers, you've got to respect the process. Teachers there teach you something they know more than you do. That's what it's all about. Let's, let's work on this together. You suck your teacher's drive all in the knowledge they've got and you will get the respect that you deserve. So are there rules? Yeah. <laughs> are there behavioural issues? Yeah. Because not every kid does that automatically. So you've got to support them to get them to that point where they show respect. But that's exactly what they do. And they have six values. At the school, these are the rules. You've got to work together, you've got to respect, you've got to strive towards excellence, you've got to persist in that, and you actually have to show responsibility for yourself and the people around you. Now, you get this a lot in various schools. If I took the, the, the mission statement for any school in Victoria, to probably say something similar, but I've actually seen it on the ground. It's just amazing. Um, you know, I was a visitor in that school. They didn't even know me, but I got a few hi, hellos. It was like being in a country school, actually. And, um, oh, you look lost, sir. Can I help you? All that sort of stuff. Just cheeky little kids. I love them. Anyway, Brunswick Secondary College, our school for the week here on the Dogs Program. For three years, teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. We're proud product of a government-funded primary school education and of a government-funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's simply not good enough that kids with disability miss out. Our education is not for profit. Our education is not for profit. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on AM Dial and podcast on the www.s at 3cr.org.au. Look, we've just got to, we're going to finish up now because our hour's almost up. I just thought I can't let the can't let the show go without mentioning, oh, I don't know, the bet noir of the Dogs Program here all the way over in America, Betsy DeVos, the Education Secretary over there in um, Trump's, actually, no, the President of the United States of America's Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, billionaire Betsy DeVos, who runs the education system. Really interesting article about her, as I see earlier, well, just a couple of days ago, um, it was actually in the South Philadelphia Review. I picked it up. And they said something about it that I thought was interesting because Betsy DeVos strongly condemned what was going on in Charlottesville about three, three weeks ago. She really was off the page with Trump. She said, no, this is all very clear. You can't be having that. And so she um, it was quite strong on that. And, this, and the South Philly Review comments that Betsy DeVos, who is trying to dismantle the public education system of the United States of America, says Betsy is not evil. She's just... An ideologue. When she found out, this is Betsy, that there was a rule called Title IX that would disregard due process when dealing with so-called college date rape, she moved to end it, to support the process. That means you can't sort of, uh, there's some exemption for rape if it's on a date, for instance. Now she said, no, I can't be having that. So she's not evil. And that was, in fact, the right thing to do. But when... It comes for Betsy DeVos to public education. She has her own personal worldview that guides her. She's an ideologue because she has never attended, she's never taught in, she's never sent her children to a public school. In fact, she's never been in a public school except to criticise it. And she is part, and why, why? Why does she hate public education? Because she's part of a radical religious right in America that believes it is essential to separate education from the state. The whole process of education, she thinks, she thinks, as a right-wing religious ideologue, is not the business of government. It's not the business of the state. We should take the taxes and you should give it away to people who are going to do it, but not the state. Now, I think that actually sums it up more clearly than anything else I've ever written. Why does she hate this? Does she want to make money? Is she a bad person? No, she's just an ideologue. And because she is a radical religious person, she thinks that education is not the business of the state. And that is about as opposite as <laughs> the position as you can get from here at the dogs, which is to say that the education of children is not the business of religious institutions. It's not the business of, of corporations. It's the business of the people who are us. It is the business of the people we elect who represent us. It is the business of politicians. If a politician does things wrong when it comes to education, we sack that politician. We kick them out of government and find one that will do our will. Because accountability is the key when it comes to effective education of children. You might get it wrong, but if you get it wrong, the minister goes. If politicians know they're accountable rather than just farming it out to private enterprises, either religious or secular, um, if they farm it out to private enterprises and there's no accountability, then we lose our say in what happens to our children. But it's the end of the talks program, I'm afraid to say. You have to check us out at our website, of course, because we're radical. You've got to see if what we're saying is actually right. But you can at our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. But until next week, from Dale and myself in the studio, until next week when Jean, the wonderful Jean, is back, it's bye for now. In Salt Lake City, just as I am standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I'm dead, says Joe, but I'm Copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill, 
went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. Joe, you're ten years dead. 